From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome. I just wanted to uh, welcome uh, once again uh, three new affiliates to the Conspiracy Show family. KVSF 101.5 FM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. WEKY 1340 AM in Richmond, Kentucky. And WIRV 1550 AM Irvine, Kentucky. So welcome. And uh, we're... Always delighted when we add new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show. So, I've been talking with various members of the uh, Disclosure Movement in the wake of the citizen hearing on uh, UFO and ET disclosure, which happened in Washington, D.C. the end of uh, April, of course, Stephen Bassett, one of the heavyweights in that field. But there's another heavyweight also in this field. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, several years ago when I was down in Washington, uh, D.C. And uh, he was, or is, really responsible for, uh, in large measure, the disclosure movement in convincing major, uh, major witnesses, major uh, military people uh, to come forward and go on the record about uh, UFOs. And that, of course, is uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, who is, I must say, a very imposing figure. Rather intimidating. He does not suffer fools lightly. I remember we arrived at his uh, apartment in Washington, D.C., and we were about maybe five or six minutes late, and he was not impressed. He said, you know, I was an emergency room doctor. Five or six minutes could be the difference between life and death. And I thought, wow, point taken, Dr. Greer. Now, however, he is really the subject of a, a brand new feature-length documentary film called Sirius, which follows Dr. Stephen Greer, as I say, an emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher, as he struggles to disclose top-secret information about classified energy and propulsion techniques. Sirius deals not only with the subject of UFO and ET visitation disclosure, but also with the advanced, clean, and alternate energy technology that's getting them here. Sirius goes into eye-opening detail regarding how the disclosure of such technology, some of which have been suppressed for decades, can enable humanity to leave the age of the polluting petrodollar, transform society, and improve mankind's chances for their survival. The film includes numerous government and military witnesses to UFO and ET secrecy. It also explains the connection to free energy and provides not only the vision of contact with ET civilizations, as regularly witnessed by the CE5 contact teams featured therein, but also the paradigm-shifting physical evidence of a medically and scientifically analyzed DNA-sequenced humanoid creature of unknown classification found in the Atacama Desert, Chile. Additionally, eye-opening are the credentials and pedigree of the science and medical team behind the potentially profound and historical announcement. Joining me to talk more about this feature-length documentary film, Sirius, is an Emmy Award-winning film director, Amardeep Kalika, and the co-founder of ETLet'sTalk.org and also the founder of the CE5 Global Initiative, which is a term describing a fifth category of close encounters with extraterrestrial intelligence characterized by mutual bilateral communication rather than unilateral contact. Costa Macris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Armadeep and Costa. How are you? Thank you very much. Hey. Well, I'm just fine. Thank now, you very much. Amardeep, I, I understand that you like to be referred to as Arm. Can I call you Arm? 
Absolutely. You can call me Arm. Okay. And uh, Acosta, welcome to you as well. Let me start by asking you how you got involved in this film and how you came to know Dr. Stephen Greer. We were doing a script for a, a studio, a mini studio here. Uh, we wrote a script that had to do with extraterrestrials and this whole endeavor and exciting research that's coming out about it. Uh, and I picked up the phone and I said, uh, Dr. Greer, uh, could we meet? Because I really want to, at the end of the script, send people to www.disclosureproject.com. He said, well, let's, we could do better than that. I'm in L.A. Let's have a, a dinner meeting. So we, had, we sat at dinner, and immediately he understood where we were in terms of narrative film. And narrative means fictional, right? Documentary means the truth. Um, and he goes, I go to him, uh, we want to make this as, as close to the truth as possible. So if there's anything that we could talk about about this, he was, he was open. He was like, no, let's really talk about it. And then he started telling me about how uh, he has a yogi flew 15 feet, and all these miraculous things happened to him, and he was um, he was abducted, for lack of a better word, by you know extraterrestrials, and they put back down to have a mission, you know. And I was like, oh my god, this is an interesting character. He he himself is such an interesting character, whether it be a lightning rod for good or bad, he's interesting. So I said to him, I said, hey, what about a documentary on you and all of the situation that we're seeing and the whole community that is coming together. And that's where we hit it off. You know, he was like, how do we do that? And I was like, you know, there's a thing called crowdfunding. Uh, lo and behold, we became the highest crowdfunded documentary to date. Um, that doesn't, you know, that's, that's amazing in its own right because crowdfunding is changing the way people do business. Uh, it's the way the Encyclopedia Britannica was written. It was actually crowdsourced not just with funding, but scientists uh, levied and gave their articles to uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So that's how we that's how we met. That's how we got off the ground, and we then we started going into research and stuff like that. That was Arm Kalika. All right, let's uh, get uh, Costa McCrease in here. Now, first of all, uh, explain what the CE5 Global Initiative is all about, Costa. Certainly. It's um, an inspiration that came from Dr. Greer's vision of citizen ambassadors, who would learn the CE5 Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind protocols that Dr. Greer had been lecturing about, writing about, and teaching uh, to people uh, by the hundreds and thousands all over the, the planet. And so the idea was that um, uh, I could organize all these people from all over the world who were using these CE5 protocols um, in a coordinated monthly um, effort uh, usually on a Saturday nearest the new moon when we would have a dark sky, and try to build up a, a, um, a, um, a wave of, um, of more and more sightings through our efforts. So the Global C5 initiative uh, began in October 2010. We started out with 40 teams at that time, uh, spread over maybe about a dozen countries, and now we've actually grown at, um, through the auspices of etletstalk.org, to more than 3,200 members um, all over the world, but comprising more than 50 countries. So our, our idea is to, at least once a month, get together over a 24-hour period, no matter where, where we are in whatever location, and despite the fact we may never meet and know each other, 
still in the virtual kind of community, we approach the ET presence here on Earth, the many races that um, are visiting and helping, with our uh, goodwill, with peaceful intentions, and with the, in the intention to do bilateral communication, interactive communication, not just passive, because what CE5 really is about is a human-initiated contact with uh, the ET intelligence, uh, or as I, li I like to call them, our star friends, and then an ongoing communication in many, many different ways. So this Global CE5 initiative is really on the vanguard of uh, humans interacting with this ET presence in a very intelligent, very loving, and co-creative kind of way to see what we as ambassadors and what they as visitors uh, can create together, how we can help each other, because we have the survival of the Earth both in, in common and of, of humanity and all the life forms here. Um, the ETs have stated that they're very uh, concerned about uh, the many challenges and problems that have been created here, and I don't have to mention to your listeners, you know, what those are, but they do include in the list, you know, wars, environmental destruction, of uh, the the fossil fuel problem that we have, et cetera, et cetera. So we have something in common, and the Global C5 initiative is bringing our teams together every month uh, to talk with the ETs and communicate in whatever way is is appropriate. And we consider that being something that uh, is not has never been done on this scale before. We intend to grow to thousands of teams in all countries of the world, and we're on our way to doing that. And that's why we created etletstalk.org to coordinate this great citizens' movement for doing this communication. What form does this bilateral communication with these ET races present here on Earth take? I mean, how do you communicate with them? We use uh, what we call a, a consciousness-based approach. Anybody who's uh, ever heard of an alpha state where you can get into um, a very relaxed mode physically and mentally and emotionally where you're, um, though you're relaxed, you're still aware of what's, what's around you. Now, this is a, a kind of heightened kind of vibration, a frequency. The ET races that are visiting here can attune to that. They can, can find you and communicate with you um, at, at that level. Now, the communication, uh, after it's initiated by the human, will often be responded to in many different ways by the ET presence. It doesn't have to just be a sighting in the sky, um, although that's very thrilling and exciting. And you know, no matter how many times it happens to me and others, we we um, and it, it always remains fresh. You understand? But the communication can come in other ways. Um, the ETs, the ETs rather, can use uh, telepathy for those of us who are able to to communicate in that way. They can uh, work through our lucid dreams. They can uh, use electrical phenomenon. We often have um, radar detectors going off in the middle of uh, places that are very remote where there's no signals. We have um, um, smartphones that turn on and, and many, many other things like that that get reported by our groups. So the communication comes in a very large variety of ways and th that is not just about the lights in the sky, as exciting as that is. Costa McCreese is uh, with us, co-founder of ETLetstalk.org and the founder of the CE5 Global Initiative. In addition, Armadeep Kalika is with us, Emmy Award-winning director and uh, two of the principals involved in the feature-length documentary Sirius. 
which uh, follows the uh, the life of Dr. Stephen Greer, an emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher, as he struggles to disclose top secret information about classified energy and propulsion techniques. We'll talk about that as well. And this fascinating uh, story also contained in the film, and that is this humanoid creature of unknown classification that was discovered in a desert in Chile. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Talking about the feature-length documentary film Sirius, about the the life and work of uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, uh, who's no uh, stranger to listeners of this program. Uh, But it's also about the disclosure of uh, free energy technologies and uh, advanced propulsion systems and also the discovery of this humanoid creature found in the uh, desert in Chile. It's almost three films in one brought together nicely through the work of Emmy Award-winning director Arm Kalika, who was uh, born in India, came to America because of religious persecution, and his father was tragically killed in a mass shooting at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin almost a year ago now. And uh, yeah. so, Arm, you've really taken active advocacy role in championing for peace as a result of that, and, and you consider this film serious, a tool in bringing people together. How so? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of my job is to uncover truth as a documentarian and spread it, or at least try to get closer to what is true and what is not true. In the situation with my father, where you know, religiously we were religiously persecuted in India, and then we have a white extremist who came into our temple and attacked it and killed six people. Everybody in the you know that knew that we were making the film cried, "Well, this is a government conspiracy. This is a government conspiracy," and. I had to stop everybody that was uh, around me that was saying that because I said, look, and there wasn't that many. There was only a couple of people around me that, that who knew of the whole information and said, could this possibly be? Um, and, of course, I had to stop everybody and say, no, it, it cannot be because it doesn't, it doesn't match reason. It doesn't match logic. It doesn't match the map that is already set up. Um, you give a good, a, a good summary of the film in one of the the themes that we have to deal with in the film is free energy uh, and the idea of technological advancement to the point that we can become a peaceful society. And that, everybody asked me about. They're like, did you guys find devices? And we did find some devices. And, of course, we were dismayed or swayed away from other devices uh, for political reasons, which almost always had to do with capitalism and had nothing to do with government conspiracy. It had to do with the idea, well, in, in our case, I'm not going to say that all over the world, you know, patents are not suppressed. I think that they are suppressed. I'm not going to say that the, there is a secret hand that sits aside certain leadership positions in our government. And the only reason we call them a secret society is because they themselves don't want to be known. And so they must be just labeled a secret society. And there is, there are those groups of people that create assassination attempts, coup d'etats, like, and that use uh, whatever ilk or uh, team surrounding them to do so. So it, it's, it's really hard as a filmmaker to separate what's false and what's real. And that's our job as a documentary filmmaker. You mentioned that uh, you, you got a glimpse of some of this free energy technology or advanced 
weapon or advanced propulsion systems. Tell me a little bit more about, about that. What, what are we talking about? Did you see? Did you see hardware? Did you see, or did you see documents alluding to such hardware? Oh yeah, definitely. Like you'll see in the film, we get a great device from uh, Paul Murad, an engineer who used to work in uh, the Department of Defense, and you know had a lot of connections. And when we ask a question point blank on camera, um, what do you know about? these secret people are they already far ahead in this kind of stuff watch his face he chuckles and he can't answer because he looks at the camera and he looks at the ted loader dr ted loader as he's asking the question and he he knows he's playing he's playing coy and you can tell as an audience member but he says you know i don't know what you're talking about and just stops right there and um so the, the his device it was an amazing device it uh had a 7% uh, weight reduction in terms of it spun magnetically and had a certain amount of input or pulse. So that was the closest I saw to anti-gravity, you know, and then new energy devices. Um, we were given a lot of clips from other people to use. And like I said, you, making a film, especially in given the situation with the way it was crowdfunded and the way that, uh, the financing came together and the distribution models and the marketing models, we were handcuffed at some points to to go after certain leads that we did have, you know. And I'll just say that's because of time and resources. I believe it was Dr. Greer who told me once on this program that, you know, people have paid the ultimate price in blood for attempting to disclose this free energy or a free energy system or an advanced propulsion system to the public. And I, I believe he mentioned a former head of the CIA who was found face down in the Potomac River as an example. I guess I would throw this question to you, Costa, as someone who is really dedicating his life, attempting to reach out to these ET races that may be interacting with us, or you would say are definitely re- interacting with us here on Earth. How do you reconcile, I guess, the fact that they, being the elites who have this advanced technology and, and the rest of us don't, and they're willing to kill to prevent us from getting it. How is this being perceived by these ET races, knowing that people are dying as a result of this, and, and they can't get the technology to us, the public? I'm sure that, and I can't speak for them about this, <laughs> I haven't asked that question, but just from my educate, educated guess, I would say that of course they're very concerned about this. Uh, they are concerned about uh, how this small group of elite few are pulling the strings in, in many different areas, but obviously uh, free energy is, is one of those very key areas that's the $600 trillion uh, business, um, uh, or rather the oil-fossil nuclear games, the $600 trillion business that is threatened by free energy. So the uh, the extraterrestrials of course are concerned when they see human beings uh you know being abused murdered bought off uh, and in so many other ways having their inventions um, sequestered or taken from them um, it, i i can only guess that it must be frustrating for them uh they will not from what i understand intervene in in the kind of ways maybe we wish that they would to just um uh you know, show up on the White House lawn, for example. People always bring that up and and just uh, show themselves being here. I, I think there are 
that there's a respect for human free will and the fact that we need to be able to solve our problems, to, to find our own truth, and to act on it in order to grow um, you know, into a real, uh, a real worldwide civilization. So I don't think that they're here to, to solve all that for us, but they're here uh, to, to help us where they can and where we give them permission to do so. Um, therefore, they probably have to, to watch in horror at, at some of this behavior. Now, having said that, there may be many, many times when they may have been given permission to intervene and to save lives of, of people who are doing good work um, in this area and in, in other areas that are in our common interest, ours being the human NET interest. So uh, people have said that um, they've seen ET craft following chemtrails, for example, and cleaning them up, or around the Fukushima reactor trying to do work to alleviate the, the levels of radiation. The stories go on and on. The experiences go on and on in that vein where there is some help that's being given. So I can't say that uh, the, um, the star civilizations out there, or here, rather, are being totally passive about it. Um, it's, it's not my call to know in what situation they would intervene and in what they wouldn't, because there's a far bigger picture than I, cer I certainly can, can see in terms of what's viable when. But I do have faith and some knowledge that where they can, they do protect us, they do work with us, and there may be many ways that we will, may never learn about how, how well we were protected. Uh, one of those, by the way, is the fact uh, from many different sources, people talk about how um, StarCraft have shown up around nuclear installations, and we're told that there are many times when uh, nuclear wars have been prevented because they have been able to um, temporarily shut down weapons on you know, both sides or one side or wherever the aggression was happening in order to avert World War III, which, as we all know, would be pretty darn catastrophic for the whole planet. Um, that's probably an extreme example where they would have been allowed uh, to intervene. So, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes they can they can help out these inventors, and you know, to, to the point of your question, and sometimes perhaps they cannot. Uh, the, may the day come when we have full open contact and disclosure, and the powers that have been the controllers are no longer here and then we can work openly with these civilizations because they have amazing technologies and free energy of course is is, is one of those great ones um, a lot of your listeners might ask well free energy that's nice how do these ETs really affect my daily life you know I gotta go to work I've gotta pay my bills gotta educate my kids I know they're kind of out there I sort of believe why does it matter to me and what can I do I'm only one person and at etletstalk.org we answer that question by saying it has everything to do with you when you form a community such as we have to make bilateral communication with, with these ETs, we're actually creating a positive future for ourselves. We're being active about it and not passive. If uh, we were able to engage and bring these ET civilizations here on Earth out in the open, the free energy they have would power our homes. It would run our cars, our factories, our cities, our nations, people's work hours, work weeks, would be reduced because we wouldn't have to just suddenly fight for all these basic survival things that could be provided by the free energy from the quantum vacuum of space. These ET civilizations have solved these problems. And it's not, like I say, just about uh, 
the lights in the sky. It's about the lies on the ground. They've been, they've been covered up because bringing this free energy would liberate many nations. Uh, it, could be, it, it, it would turn into the end of poverty, of hunger. Why fight wars over limited oil and fossil fuel resources when you have free energy? So you can see then that the good that could come to all of humanity from uh, this open contact and cooperation with these civilizations is immeasurable. We could have, um, you know, a new earth, a golden age, and that's what we're striving for. Uh, at etletstalk.org, we're training people to go out into the field and to make this communication. And as uh, one individual, maybe we don't count, but when there's thousands of us like like there are now, and we're growing every day then we're going to make an impact and the ETs will someday be able to to walk the uh, the earth with us and bring some of these technologies and did I mention you know uh, medical technologies other scientific marvels that we can only dream of that that would be available to us but first we have to be peaceful and uh, solve some of our own problems in getting along let me uh, throw this over to uh, the director Arm Kalika in the film, I mean, you're talking to, to government uh, and military witnesses. Some of these uh, people, I'm, I presume, know more than they let on on camera. Did you get the sense from making this film that there is this chasm within government and the military? On one side, you have those who want to disclose. They think it's the right thing to do. It's the moral imperative. Then you have the others who don't want to disclose, but maybe for good reason. Maybe they feel that we're not prepared for such a, a paradigm shift. If you were to introduce, for example, free energy into a system that's reliant upon, you know, the, 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 the petrodollar, the economy, I mean, would go through a major cataclysmic shift. So let me throw that out to you, Arm. Do you, I mean, what is your sense of those who don't want to disclose? Do you think that maybe at some level they might even have a point? I'll try to be short because, you know, it, it is kind of a, a difficult one because in this community there is a lot of professing, and I, as a documentarian, like to ask questions just like you asked, but uh, I think people should be asking themselves these same questions. And in terms of extraterrestrials or disclosure of this situation or free energy, I think you got to think of you purposely don't bump into another human when you walk by them, right? You give them their personal space to grow or to walk, or to move. And the same thing with um, civilizations this large. They know not to go take their ships and, you know, just land on other people's soil and pass out, you know, white blankets with, you know, TB in them and wipe you out. It's just not ethically right. And if you're going to be this advanced over a million years, I do believe, you know, you're going to have a high uh, understanding of ethics. All right, let me just uh, jump in here. Sorry to interrupt, Arm. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, though, I'll get your sense on those in the military and the government that don't want to disclose. And I guess I'm, I'm asking whether you can see their point to a certain extent that we may not be ready for this. But we'll uh, we'll get to that uh, when we come back. Arm Kalika and Costa Macris, two of the principals involved in the documentary film Sirius, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. I'm Ardeep Kalika, Emmy Award-winning director and 
Costa Macris, co-founder of ETLet'sTalk.org, my guests as we discuss the documentary film Sirius, which is, as I say, really three films in one. It's uh, it's about the uh, the life of Dr. Stephen Greer, an emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher, and one of the principal driving forces behind the disclosure movement, along with people like uh, uh, Stephen Bassett, who organized the recent citizen hearing on UFO disclosure in Washington. But further, the film is also about the ongoing effort to disclose advanced uh, propulsion systems. How are these UFOs getting to our our neck of the woods? Uh, Also, free energy systems. And then we have this amazing humanoid-like creature of unknown classification found in the uh, uh, Atacama Desert in Chile. Now, before we get to the uh, the humanoid, I, let me throw this question out again, and, and um, Costa or Armadeep, you can uh, both jump in on this if you'd like. I guess what I'm asking is, those we tend to, I think, uh, look at this in a, maybe in, in black and white. Those that are in favor of UFO disclosure are good, and those that are in, uh, in favor of keeping a lid on this are bad. And I think there's probably a lot of gray area in there as well. And what I'm, I guess I'm getting at is, is it possible that some in the in the in the let's not disclose camp might have a point? For example, introducing free energy into our current economic system, which is totally reliant upon uh, petroleum, uh, mm-hmm. agriculture, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, energy. Uh, mm-hmm. The the U.S. dollar basically is pegged to the uh, to a to a barrel of oil. If all of a sudden that goes away, fossil fuel, it could have a cataclysmic uh, consequence on on our. I mean, ultimately, perhaps you know, when we come out the other side, it's good. But to get from here to there, we could have some some really rough sledding. So I guess what I'm saying is, do you think it's possible that those that are against disclosure for that reason might have a point? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Thomas Jane, the voiceover. Of the film, a uh, legitimate actor and a technologist, and he's a futurist in so many ways. Uh, Point Blank always says to me, disclosure is not a good idea. There's so many problems with that methodology and thought process, so there is a lot of middle gray. I'd, I'd liken it to evolution, though. Like, if we cannot survive a cataclysmic shift, or in terms of let's not just say weather, let's say economies all of a sudden we just start going into rage over the economical shift. Or we can't survive the idea that there is a whole other civilization not so uh, far from us. All those things right there uh, give us the weakness that allow people to say we cannot, you know, let this out in the open. And so they fight for it. They stop it. They're, people are sitting on boards and having the same thing tank over and over, and they go, people can't handle it yet. So... Our idea is pretty much we got to get the civilization to the point where it can handle it. Uh, and how do you do that? You, it's evolution. It's Charles Darwinian. We need to change far quicker than the truth that's going to be hitting us and smacking us in the face quite soon. And everybody sees the writing on the wall. There's going to be an economic shift. A, because we're becoming a type one society very fast, as Michio Kaka would say. B, because we're doing extremely caveman-like things, and we're just hitting the point where we're able to use our spirit and mind together, that is going to, if people can't survive that, if people, you know, 
like for example, this, this uh, former white extremist runs into our temple and shoots five people and then shoots himself. He can't survive the idea that America is going to change and there's going to be people with turbans and beards, you know, at a bowling alley. That is what's setting people off. That's what's creating the idea that we won't be ready. So as Costa would say, or as Steve would say, or as a number of people would say, the problem really isn't out there as much the problem is here. So we believe extraterrestrials are just keeping their space. They kind of can sense this. There's also secret society members that sense this, and I, and I do believe a number of people in the secret society are part extraterrestrial. And there's a number of star child theories that we can go into and a number of things I witnessed on this film that I could absolutely avow that certain people have some sort of DNA shifting because they're becoming star child or they're being uh, connected to these extraterrestrial UFOs or lights in the sky or whatever it is. All right, let me um, uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, I want to get into this. DNA-sequenced humanoid creature discovered in a desert in Chile, which also features very prominently in the film Sirius. Armadeep Kalika and Costa McCreese here on The Conspiracy Show discussing Sirius. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, let's get right to a discussion on this uh, DNA-sequenced humanoid creature featured in the film Sirius. Armadeep Kalika is with us, Costa McCreese, co-founder of ETLetstalk.org. Uh, Arm Kalika is the uh, director. Uh, give us the backstory. Where was this uh, creature found, uh, when, and under what circumstances? Okay, it was found about uh, 12 years ago. There's a little bit of shift of time in terms of our research and what people say. Um, it was used uh, in the Chilean desert. It was found in Chile, South America. Um, it petrified in some way in terms of the dryness, uh, the, the area that it was in, and that is um, that is connected to the, the science that we're seeing, the evidence that we're seeing. So it's also this little being was then used in a kind of like a sideshow, like a freak, like people would pay five bucks to go see this little alien being. But that's what the guy kept saying, because there's stories in that area of sky beings and lights in the sky and little beings dropping to the ground, you know, all these amazing stories. Um, so a Spaniard comes in, and this is a dozen years ago or 14 years ago, and this is where this kind of gets a little blurry. He comes in a couple of times and keeps seeing the being, keeps being affected. And then he goes one time, I want to buy that from you, and he pays a handsome fee. And he takes it back to Spain to a little institute in Spain. So it's sitting there right now. It's an institute that we have connections to. We did post who they are in the film. Um, you can check it out. We're trying to be as transparent as possible. Um, and we asked them, can we come film there? Can we also, while we're filming, take two snippets of matter, the bones, the ribs, uh, the bone marrow, uh, brain tissue, stuff like that? And they said, yeah, you can, but you have to pay a certain amount of money. And at that point, we had crowdfunded the film, but we didn't have a lot of extra money to go pay for something like this. So this was out of the blue um, because we didn't assume that they would say yes to something like that. We thought that would be a very... So they gave us a number. We crowdfunded it. We go over there. Um, this thing, I was not able to go over there as a director because what happened on August 5th affected our whole schedule and like the weeks after, and I couldn't... Technically, I had to send my second crew, and Emery 
Dr. Emery Smith is the person that actually went there and filmed and was able to grasp and hold the being and move it around. And, and uh, he's got a science, science background. He worked for the military, um, medical background. And so they go over there. We sniff the bone. We take the bone marrow at Stanford. Uh, one of the top geneticists there, Dr. Gary Nolan. And he's one of the top stem cell guys. I mean, he's one of those top DNA guys uh, in the whole world. He's always traveling. When we talk, it's all over the place, Moscow, Japan, wherever. So Dr. Gary Nolan decides to take this on as like a pet project. And little do I know, you know, like he found out about this through the crowdfunding and he really liked the videos and he was wondering what was going on with this stuff. Um, we connected to him that way and then we told him there's this little bone marrow that we need to bring to you. So he studies it, examines it, does the mapping of the genome on it. Uh, he's still mapping to this day, but he's found some really odd results. A, from the CT scan, the MRI, um, the pictures, you'll see that the being actually only has 10 ribs. He found that out because he referenced all of his charts and maps and graphs to another doctor, uh, Dr. Lachlan, who's also at uh, UCLA and uh, Stanford. And Dr. Lachlan notices these oddities, creates a full medical report, which we published, and then Dr. Gary Nolan um, continues testing. And he finds other things. Uh, for example, the, the gene that affects per, uh, progeria, the quick aging disease, most people call it, um, and the gene that affects infant dwarfism, which would, somebody could argue that this was a dwarf in the 22-week of size gestation. Um, none of those were affected. They were normal. There was no mutation. Um, and those are things that would be, those, so then he checked the next 30 or 40 factors and little, nothing was abnormal. So then we have a, a problem here. There's a phenotype genotype difference. The, the, the being looks different than its DNA according to our map. So A, our map doesn't map this person's map. Okay. And then B, there's about 10% difference in the DNA all in all, like junk DNA and all the other things that people are finding are not so much junk. They're actually uh, some sort of marker or a telltale sign of that being. And so he's, he in the film tells you he's, he's perplexed. He is, was a scientist. He is a scientist. He wants to know this thing. He thinks the DNA is going to tell him what it is. And at the end, he can't say yes or no. I don't know what it is. Well, this they were able to extract. I'm guessing then mitochondrial DNA, which would 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 indicate the the mother. The uh, yeah, uh, uh, it, it, it's it's called B2 haplotype B2. Uh, so the the female side of this being and the DNA comes from Chile or that region. That region has had that haplotype for quite a bit now, thousands of years. So this is a hybrid. So, and, this is a hybrid then. We're saying it has uh, a, yeah. human, a human mother, and what about I the like nuclear? You think? And the nuclear DNA? What is yeah, that, that? I like that, the way you think. What does that tell us? Because, it, because think about it like this: if, uh, if you and I are going to clone Dolly the sheep, right? I'm going to take uh, male sampling and female sampling of some certain cells. I'm going to put them in an egg and put it in a new cell, and that new cell is going to start replicating itself. Well, the new cell in our in our land are are females. They're the ones with the egg. So if something can fertilize that egg somehow, some way, it can affect change in the DNA down the line. 
You know, and so we had this little being that was born a hundred or was died a hundred years ago, and now everything is showing that the being is actually six years old. Doctor Gary Nolan's jaw dropped because it, all this stuff of like bone calcification and the way they're measuring it and everything, all the results coming back, it's six years old. And he's wondering how can a six-year-old only be that, only be six inches large, and have all of these amazing features, these oblong eyes, these ten ribs, a, a jaw that's really, you know, mal-like nutrition, or a jaw that's, you know, just weaker than a normal human jaw. And what would this mean to everybody? And, I mean, I kid you not, after the film is done, not, not many people have even battered an eye. It's been sad. There's so many amazing results, and people don't even look at that as, like, a a bona fide sound specimen of something amazing in the universe. Many many parallels here with Lloyd Pye, uh, the caretaker of the Star Child Skull, who uh, uh, you know had a heck of a time getting a a, um, a lab to you know to do the genetic yeah. testing on this because you can imagine the the political fallout you know for a, for a company that specializes in genetic testing. You're doing what? You're performing tests on on a, an alien human hybrid. <laughs> well, yeah. in, in this case, uh, Dr. Gary Nolan was actually the person that debunked the, um, the Star Child skull, and he showed it with the DNA, and he showed it with something. It, it was like a, a genetic mutation that we do see in humans, and then you found multiple skulls that had it, and DNA actually pointed right there. The thing is human. It has the same, how could it have the same exact one million zeros and ones? You know, but in this case, totally. he's saying that the this android, this humanoid rather, this humanoid creature, uh, is is not a um, you know a, a malformed uh, a child, a human child. This is definitely sort of female, uh, human female mother, but father origin unknown. Is that the conclusion? Right as of right now, yeah, and um, and I think to answer your question. I'm an objective filmmaker. I understand this thing from the science and the inside out and the integrity with which everybody worked with. And I wholeheartedly believe this is something that's interesting on our planet and could be um, a half-human, half-extraterrestrial uh, being. Some sort of DNA was hatched here in this way. Let me get Costa's reaction. Uh, Costa McCreese, your, your, your thoughts on this humanoid creature? Well, I um, don't have any more specialized knowledge than what Arm has been talking about. So like so many other people, I'm following uh, the research into this being and the dynamic changes that are coming as, as Dr. Nolan continues to do research. And he actually stated in the film, this is not the end of the story. Um, after the film ends, I welcome other people to to continue their research and bring new information so that we all can come to some, some kind of a con- conclusion. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm sitting here and watching that, the, the, those same developments like you are and hoping that uh, somewhere down the line that there's an answer there. Um, now, whether this one winds up being partly of ET origin or not, um, still what position I take and what my groups take is that we know there are other civilizations here anyway now, and if you watch a lot of ancient aliens, there's a lot of archaeological and other types of evidence that shows they've been here in our history in many places for thousands of years. 
So this particular being is of interest because it's in the limelight right now, but it's by no means the only kind of evidence that we have on Earth that we have been visited and are still being visited. Well, that's exactly that's right. I mean, what our position, here's our a, position is. I, I'm so cynical at this point that uh, you know, if, for example, they were to prove scientifically, uh, categorically, that this was an alien-human hybrid and therefore, you know, 100 uh, percent proof that ETs have been uh, contacting and intermingling with human civilization, that wouldn't be enough. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't get, you know, it should be front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post, but it wouldn't be. Uh, it might get uh, uh, a quick blurb on the Drudge Report and then would be forgotten. So I guess my question to both of you in the, in the few minutes that remain is, what's it going to take for, for, for disclosure to take place? I mean, maybe... Maybe in, for the public, it's already here. But to get official, official acknowledgement that that uh, ETs are coming to this planet, what's it going to take? When the lead, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. The whole part and parcel of our movement um, at uh, etletstalk.org is to create, and we are creating a citizens' movement to do what governments have not done because they can't or they won't. That's disclosure. By sending teams out in the field by the hundreds and the thousands every month, we are allowing people to have their own experiences. So they don't have to rely on authority to tell them what's true and what's not. When you've had an experience in the field of seeing a light in the sky that just does not behave like anything known, and this happens to scores and hundreds and thousands of people, then we will be, we will be building up our own knowledge base and we won't need an authority, and we don't need an authority right now because of the fact that we're having our direct experiences with CE5 protocols. We don't need that authority to tell us, uh, this is what you saw, this is what you didn't see, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, etc., etc. We are becoming our own experts, and in our social community at etletstalk.org, we're sharing the information of our experiences across the world every month, and so that we understand that ordinary people are having these experiences now. We don't need millions of dollars and specialized equipment. We use our techniques, the CE5 protocols, and we teach those on etletstalk.org, and we do the work ourselves. And that's what I think it's going to take. When thousands and millions of people have their own experiences, it's something that nobody can take away from them. Nobody can convince them that, you know, that they're delusional or under mass hypnosis. They will know. They will have the authenticity of their experience. And when again, when that happens in the millions, that's when more disclosure is going to come about. And the weight of public opinion will force governments to say, "Okay, you got us now. Uh, here, here are all our files. Yeah, we were covering it up." Costa, I don't I, know when that will happen, but we're part of the movement that's making that happen right now. Well, I hope you're right, Costa, uh, Costa Macris and Armadeep Kalika. Uh, two of the principals behind the film, Sirius. Uh, very quickly, gentlemen, because we've only got about 15 seconds, how can people see this film? Online, uh, theaters, DVDs are out. Go to Sirius.NeverEndingLight.com or SiriusDisclosure.com, and you'll be able to watch it right online, and DVDs will be right there pre-sold, and then we'll be doing another theatrical release shortly. Hopefully, cross your fingers, guys. We're fighting a lot of fights over here. All right. Thank you both, gentlemen. Back uh, next week with a brand new show live from Greece. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. 
What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.